Good morning again. Boy, I sure wish you were here, and I hope you feel the same way, but I am grateful that you've joined us. We are continuing a series of lessons. It's part one, part two. Today is part two, um, and here's the basic premise. There is a desperate need for a compelling biblical view of the church. For those who have been or are disappointed or frustrated with the church, a biblical image of the church is especially important for you because you may be hearing these messages, reading these scriptures and saying, I hear all this about a local church, but I could tell you a story or two. And I would share with you, I've been in full-time ministry for about 35 years, and I could tell you a story or two as well. So if you've ever been discouraged or frustrated with the church, if you've ever felt like giving up, um, and I think all of us who have been a part of the church have had a moment of just wondering, what do we feel? What do we think? How do we see this? This message is especially for you. My fervent prayer is what we mentioned last week as we opened, is that as Paul prayed, the eyes of our hearts will be enlightened so that we may see the church as Jesus sees the church. And then in doing so, we can answer God's call to serve Him in His kingdom wherever He may send us. Last week we began by asking, well, what did Jesus mean when He used the word church? And we talked about He didn't use the word church often at all, as far as that word, at least that we have recorded, two times. He spoke first about the church universal in Matthew 16, 18, when He said, I will build my church. That said, we talked about 2 Timothy 2.19, where he said, the Lord knows those who are His. Because sometimes in a church, we see some people who are not very Jesus-like, and it frustrates us. In 2 Timothy, he talks about that, name two people. So he made that comment, the Lord knows those who are His. After last week's message, someone came up to me and reminded me of a line, uh, I think it was uh, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said, the line between heaven and hell runs down the middle of the church. Now that bothers us, and we wish it was not so, but it is so. Jesus talked about the wheat and the tares, and He knows those who are His. And the next part of that verse says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. So he talked about the church universal, but he also talked about the local congregation in Matthew chapter 18, talking about some brothers that weren't getting along and to take it to the church, and and they were to help in that kind of situation. The truth is the church is unlike anything else in the world, and so we need to know, and and the Bible tells us how God uses multiple images to teach us what it is like. So the verses are going to be on the screen if you want to follow along there, but I encourage you at home especially to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start there and then jump to chapter 5, but most of our verses are going to be there, and you can just see this straight from Scripture. Last week, as we were talking and opening this study, we talked not only about how Jesus used the word church, we talked about one of the pictures, one of the analogies of the church, and that is the church is a body. And what's key to this teaching, this understanding, this way of viewing is that Jesus chooses to operate through His body. That's how He chooses to operate today. And that is key. Well, let's continue. We should also view the church 
as a building of people. And this speaks to Christ's presence in the church. I want to begin Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So when Jesus said, I will build my church in Matthew 16, he was talking about people, not a physical structure. And this image shows that the purpose of our Lord is that he wants to build us together. You two are being built together, he says there in verse 22. Peter used this same kind of way of thinking, this same theme in Second Peter, 1 Peter 2 verse 5. He says, we are living stones. Look what he says. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is putting together a building made up of people who, as Peter describes, are living stones. Now, these living stones are not manufactured bricks where they're all the same color and all the same size. Uh, not at all. Stones come in all shapes and sizes. They come out of a quarry and they have rough edges and the great skill of the master builder fits them all together so it finds its special place of how it can fit into the building that he is constructing. So scripture here describes this picture that each of us are like living stones. That means we're all different. We have our own individualities, our limitations, our talents, our strengths, and Christ uses all of us to build his church. So you may come to a church like West 7th and say, well, I'm not sure I'm like the, most of the people here. And I would respond, great, that means we need you all the more. Because it takes all shapes and sizes and, and kinds of people, different ways of thinking. Different types of stones, these living stones for God, the master builder, to build something that he's putting together. God created you as one of a kind in his image. And God wants to use you in the construction of this building. But here's the point. I want to make sure you get this. We must see the church as a work in progress. Several of us are about to go on a mission trip, and I was reminded of another mission trip from West 7th where some men, and we were in Honduras, and as we were driving through, we noticed it was not unusual to see a house that was still under construction. They would have part of a wall or, or, or part of a ledge or something, maybe the roof was missing, and we asked about it, and they mentioned that whenever you finished construction, there was this tax that you had to pay. So everybody left their house in construction, a work in progress. Looked a little odd, but you kind of understood their motivation. We need to remember the church is a building that is in progress. It's still being built. Look back at Ephesians 2.22, where notice the, the tense here of the verbs. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Present tense, the building is joined together and rises. 
You are being built together. This is still going on. Now, this is very important, especially for those who may have had a negative experience with the church. Or if you tend to have a uh, a critical spirit, or maybe you're prone to discouragement. We must understand the, the church is a work in progress. God's building is not yet complete. So don't be too harsh or, or too quick to be critical. So no one should be surprised if the church looks like a building site more than a showroom. The church is made up of ordinary people who they themselves are in the process of being redeemed and, and, and sanctified and set apart, as the Bible says. We're all sinners being renewed. There isn't one of us who isn't what he or she should be. And there isn't one of us who is, is what he or she will be. When God is finished with each of us individually, much more when you put us together. Have you heard the line, the church is a hospital, not a museum of saints? Attributed to several people, most frequently to St. Augustine. And I think that picture, that image is a good one because it's consistent with Jesus' teaching. In Mark 2, 7, he said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So the whole point of the hospital is there for the sick people. And when you view the church, hear this, when you view the church as the Bible describes, you have realistic expectations. Let me say that again. When you view the church as the Bible describes, you have realistic expectations. Think of how challenging it is for two sinners to have a good marriage. How much more for 50 or 500 people to have a a good church? 500, I should say, sinners to have a good church. When we see Jesus, we will be like Him. But until then, we're under construction. So in any local church, you should expect to find things that need improvement. Things that are not as they should be. Things that are missing. Maybe things are only roughed in and they need some finish work. It will always be like this until the Lord comes back. But it's easy for the critic, it's easy for the one who's trying to be negative, the cynic, to take a quick look at the local church and say, look at all this mess. How can Jesus be present in a mess like this? It just doesn't make sense. Well, Scripture answers that. If we will get our view of the church, Scripture tells us the answer. Jesus Christ is present as the builder. That's what we need to keep in mind. I heard it illustrated like this. Some of you can relate. Imagine you decided to do a major remodel on your house. In fact, it's so so big, you think, you know what, we're just going to leave town for a week. Go stay with family or vacation. You're going to leave while they do the, the bulk of the, of the, of the work. And, and then when you come back, then most of that will be done. And so you leave the keys with your contractor. You go off for a week. Imagine when you come back after a week and nothing has changed. You open the door and it's just as you left it. What do you think? Well, the contractor hasn't been here. Nothing has happened. You're so disappointed. But if you come back after a week and there's a huge dumpster in your front drive and it's full of debris 
And you open the door and you look and you see there's there's a protection over all the floors and you see ladders everywhere and you see walls moved and construction dust is just everywhere and just chaotic and a mess. You think, we have made some progress. It's a mess, but you see progress is being made. The fact that the church often feels more like a chaotic building site should be evidence to us that the presence of the builder is there. Jesus is working on us. The chaos is evidence that the transformation is not yet complete. Now, if you do not view the church as a work in progress, you're going to spend the rest of your life looking for perfection, and you're never going to find it. And the rest of your life, you're going to be despondent and discouraged because that's not how God wants you to view the church. I put this on the outline. If you've got a copy of that online, it's on the screen as well. But once you choose to see the church as a building under construction, you understand even more the need for patience and forgiveness and endurance. Colin Smith says, God uses two perfect environments. You've probably heard this before. To reshape us in the image of Christ. One is the family and the other is the church. Both imperfect But he uses both of those because it's in those places where we rub up against one another. And God uses these experiences to rough out those edges on each of us as those living stones. That's what Peter was talking about. When you are living stones, you're cut out of the quarry, thrown in the wheelbarrow with some other stones, and it doesn't feel good as you're jostled about with some others that also have some rough edges. And the builder takes the hammer and the chisel and starts chipping away at the edges and he's shaping you and molding you and preparing you to to be used in his kingdom as he's building his church. Now you may not see all of that. And if all you can focus on is how you've got some people in your life that are bumping up against you and making life difficult, you're going to find that exasperating and want to give up. Peter Jeffrey said this, Christians need the church for its problems as well as its blessings. Think about that. The people, Christians need the church for its problems as well as its blessings. Another writer used this phrase and I loved it. He called Christians God's abrasives. God's abrasives. God's abrasive of how those rough edges come off. That's why the loner Christian ends up unchanged. They still have all the rough edges. They choose to stay away from the very thing God wants to use to make them better. So they can be better equipped and to serve within His building that He's building. So the church is the perfect place to learn patience and forgiveness and endurance. You need the church with its problems as well as its blessings. It's the place where it happens. It's the family and in the church and you severely impede your own growth and development without it. You've heard the line, if you find the perfect church, don't go there because you'll spoil it. You've heard that said before. Here's another way to see that. If you find the perfect church, don't go there because it won't do you any good. You need the church to help you. There's no abrasives in a perfect church. There won't be any in heaven, because we'll be perfect then. 
But it's through the trials in life that Christ sanctifies us and transforms each of us into his image. So this begs the question, you're probably thinking about it, who are God's abrasives in my life? They may come and go, there's some that may be there for a while, but who is God using in this painful process of chipping off those rough edges so that you can be all that you can be? So He can form you more and more to the image of Jesus so that you can carry out His will in the local church. God does that painful work in the church and it's for His glory. God does that so you can grow in patience and so that you can grow in forgiveness and that you can grow in endurance and even more. All of this will keep us from becoming easily discouraged when there's a difficulty. Now, Warren Wearsby said, never get hung up on one image of the church. And I found that to be helpful because each image that Scripture tells us gives us one angle, but you really need to look at all of the ways the Bible mentions that. In these two messages, we've studied the church is the body of Christ, the church is the building of Christ. Here's a third, the church is the bride of Christ. And this truly helps us to see His heart. This is the union between Christ and the church. And it's the model for the Christian marriage. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 5, several verses here. Let's begin in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. You've heard that passage before, but notice the order here. The verse doesn't say to Christians, hey guys, Jesus loved the church this way, the, the way you love your wives. Because sometimes we don't love our wives very well. And it does not say, make sure we get this, it does not say that marriage teaches us about Christ and the church. Because sometimes we misinterpret that. Paul says the relationship with Christ and the church tells us what God intends for the husband and wife in marriage. That's where you see it modeled. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, Paul quotes a familiar verse. You've heard this before. Even starting in Genesis, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, two will become one flesh. And then verse 32, he adds, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, some of you need to listen up because you grew up maybe in a dysfunctional home. Because you experienced that in your upbringing, you may tend to read over these passages when it talks about marriage or God as a father because for you, you can't go there. It's, it's a negative way of connecting the two. Some of you experienced a broken home where your parents did not treat each other well. Maybe there's a sense of abandonment. If that's true for you, then how do you know what it means to be a godly husband or a godly wife? If your father was not present, if he was not faithful, if he was not good to your mom, where can you learn as a man what it means to be a godly husband, a good man, or as a woman to learn how to relate to your husband? Maybe you hear this verse and think, of course Jesus is a perfect example, but he wasn't married, so he doesn't really know. Or maybe you're thinking, I didn't have a good father, so I can't relate to God as a father. Don't fall for that way of thinking. Here's the truth. No one comes to God by having a good father. You find out what a good father is when you know how good God is. And it will be liberating for you when you see this truth. So don't get this the wrong way. Don't get things turned around. You get to know God and you'll discover what a good father is. Whether you had a good father on earth or not. 
And this passage teaches us that Jesus does have a bride, the church. He's the bridegroom. So you get to know Jesus and you discover what a good husband is, whether you saw this modeled for you or not. Now, this is the wonderful news of the gospel in the reality lived out in daily life. This is what Scripture is trying to get us to see. God, through Jesus, is wonderfully redemptive, always trying to make things better. That's who He is. That's His nature. That's what He wants to do for us. So no matter your background, you can always rise above it because you're not based on your upbringing. Your future is based on the one you follow. It gives us wonderful hope. I think it also sheds some light to understand the context of the passage. Paul is not writing these words in, in Ephesians, assuming that, hey, I know you grew up with the number one dad and you got all the mugs and the t-shirts. Not at all. The church in Ephesus, they were from a very pagan culture. They had no knowledge of Christ at all. Their morality had nothing like what we knew, know of in Scripture. Paul was saying to these people who did not experience a God-centered home, you learn to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And you get to know Him. So if you want to know what a godly marriage looks like, no matter how good your parents might have been, they still bring their cultural baggage, they have their generational issues, they have their, their own quirks and selfishness. They're still sinners in need of a Savior. The place to begin to learn is looking at the relationship between Christ and the church. So husbands, you think long and hard about Christ and the church. And God will teach you. He will show you what kind of husband He's calling you to be. Christ's love for the church gives us, if you will, the shape and the pattern, the template for loving your wife. Well, how does Christ love the church? Let me share a few. In fact, as I do this, I'm going to go quickly. But um, each of these points, these images could be a sermon in of themselves and, and multiple. In fact, uh, I, I was so hopeful and now a little discouraged that our small groups are not being able to meet. But I hope you'll give this some more thought and, and pray for this. But just very quickly, let's look from the book of Ephesians specifically of how we're told here of Jesus loved the church. First, Jesus gave himself for the church. Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does that mean, he gave himself up for her? I hope you already know he gave up everything in heaven to come to earth so that we could have a way to be a part of his church, even before we knew him, even before we loved him. He gave it all up. Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He endured. He suffered. He forgave. And He died. Well, back to Ephesians 5, 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. If you really think about that, you, you quickly realize you can't do that in your own power. So you immediately go to your knees and say, God, I, I need your help. I need your strength. I, I need your spirit to help me to know, to guard my tongue, help my attitude, help me to know what this means, what it looks like. And number two, Jesus leads the church. Ephesians 5.23, Christ is the head of the church, His body of which He is the Savior. 
Ephesians 2.20, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. You ever think about Jesus wants what is best for the church? Jesus is always up to something good. He wants his church to, to excel, to thrive. What will Jesus do for the church at West Seventh this year? You ever think about that? Start of a new year? What will Jesus do in the church at West Seventh this year? In the next five years? Not one of us can truly answer that. We could guess, we could dream, we could ask. May we live in expectant hope to experience His love, His grace, His goodness, His power in ways that brings immense joy. That's the romance of the Christian life. Jesus is ahead of the church. And He loves us by leading us, wanting what's best for us, growing us, helping us. Number three, Jesus nourishes the church. Back to Ephesians 5, verse 28 and 29. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one's ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. The point here is very simple. Just as you look out for your own body, you feed it, you nourish it, you protect it, you take care of it. The church is the body of Christ. And Jesus feeds it. He cares for it. He protects it. He protects His church. Remember His line, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You have His Word. And then number four, it gets even better. Jesus will present the church to Himself. This is such a beautiful thought. This is such an incredible promise. Jesus will present the church to Himself. Look at Ephesians 5.27. Christ will present her to Himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Do you hear that verse and think, how can the church be described as radiant, without stain and wrinkle, without any other blemish, holy? Blame? Is he talking about the same church we know that we've experienced all of our lives? At any given time, they look around and go, that's not the church. Michael Griffiths wrote a book about the church he called Cinderella with Amnesia. Who doesn't know the story of Cinderella? After a wonderful evening at the ball and the dancing with the prince, her heart is captivated. His heart is captivated. But Cinderella, you know the story, had to leave before midnight and on her way out lost one of her shoes. And the prince is obsessed, enamored, has to find her, will not stop. So he sends out that shoe to everybody in the kingdom to try on the shoe to find her. He's coming after her. Meanwhile, Cinderella doesn't know that. She's dressed in rags, despised by her ugly sisters, oppressed by her wicked stepmother. But the destiny in her life, if there's something bigger, something better, something greater, joy, love, and peace in the palace, Cinderella with amnesia may well describe the church today. She looks ragged at times. There are some ugly brothers and sisters who despise her, who count the church of little value. In some parts of the world, the wicked stepmother persecutes her. 
Michael Griffiths takes up that picture and says, the church is often like Cinderella with amnesia. Our problem is that we've lost prince, lost sight of the prince in our glorious future. When we do not view the church, when we do not see the church as Jesus does, no wonder we become negative and critical and cynical and even give up because we're not seeing the way Jesus sees. We lose sight. We become frustrated. We lose our hope. We lose our joy. We need to remember whose we are to never forget to whom we belong. We are His. Christ has chosen as His bride the church. We are His body. We are His building. We are His bride. And if you really love the bridegroom, you will love the bride. There is a holy union between Christ and the church. And it's similar to the union between a bride and a bridegroom. If you hurt the bride, you hurt the groom. You can't separate the two. Every husband knows this. Someone's rude to your wife. They, they hurt your wife. They do something to your wife. You rise to protect her, her honor, her name, her dignity, her safety. Why? Because God tells you you're one. You hurt the bride. You hurt the groom. Do you remember when Jesus appeared to Saul of Tarsus? He was persecuting the church on his way to Damascus to do even more. Jesus appeared to him. And Jesus did not ask him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He didn't put it that way. Do you remember what he said? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. That's the way Jesus saw it. What Saul was doing to the church, he was doing to Jesus. What you do to the bride, you're doing to the bridegroom. Last week I quoted Tom Nelson. Let me share another thought of his. I put it on the screen. For a long time in my own spiritual journey, I separated my love for Jesus and my love, or more often lack of love, for the local church. Immersed in a tradition that wonderfully emphasized personal belief in Jesus and following him in personal discipleship, I finally grasped that I was also to love what Jesus loved. With that realization, I understood the teaching of Holy Scripture more clearly. The closer I walk with Christ, the nearer and dearer his beautiful bride, the local church, becomes. The question I most often ask myself is, Tom, what do you truly love? What we truly love is not hard to determine. What do we dream and talk about? What do we sacrifice for? What do we persistently pray for? What we truly love is evidence in how we spend our resources of time, talent, and treasure. The truth of the gospel is much more profound than a Cinderella feel-good fairy tale. Though the circumstances of living in a fallen world can be harsh and trying, there is a day coming. The day is coming when Jesus will no longer choose to operate through His body, the church. The day is coming when the construction of this building of people will end. The day is coming when the bridegroom will return for His bride. Christ has chosen a bride 
And the bride is the church. And he will present the church to himself. And when he does, it will not be broken in rags and tattered. Because Jesus' amazing grace, the church will be without stain, wrinkle, or any other blemish. With perfect love, Jesus looks at the church, his bride, says there'll be no wrinkles, there'll be no stains, she'll be radiant, she'll be glorious, and we'll be living together in heaven forever. Oh, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to view the church, to see the church as Jesus sees the church. Because we're online, there's not going to be a song of invitation, a time for you to respond publicly. But I hope you'll go back and read these scriptures, maybe look at the small group study guide yourself and spend more time and say, God, open my eyes to see. If you need special prayer, call an elder, call a minister, let us know. Let me close our message with a prayer and then we'll have our more announcements and, the, and more prayer. Let's bow together. Father, open the eyes of our hearts. Enlighten us. Teach us. Show us how to view your church. And Father, forgive us for allowing the world, the culture, our self-centered thinking to in any way take away from this marvelous work that you were doing. God, help us to see the church as you see the church. Help us to love what you love as you love. And it's all because of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. The Lord lifts his countenance upon